Welcome to this edition of DCS Talks, a podcast production of the Tennessee Department of Children's Services. The intention of DCS Talks is to promote dialogue among child welfare professionals, foster parents, and the entire community about ways to prevent child abuse and neglect. I'm Serena Wilson, a training manager at DCS, and I'm your host for this edition. Today, I'm pleased and honored to be able to interview Corey Copeland, primary administrator, center for the Interstate Commission for Juveniles at the Department of Children's Services in the Office of Juvenile Justice. For those not familiar with the Interstate Commission of Juvenile, it is the governing body over laws that regulates the interstate movement of juveniles who are under court supervision or who have run away to another state. Each state has a commissioner who is responsible for the management of the state's administration, and that's Ms. Copeland's role as the department. Ms. Copeland has a long career in child welfare and juvenile justice, including case management, supervision, program coordination, which all prepared her for her role as the ICJ commissioner. ICJ is important and it's complex, and we asked Corey here today to help us learn more about it. So, Corey, thank you Thank you so much and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Serena, and I appreciate you uh, giving me the opportunity to join you today to talk about all things ICJ. Fantastic. We know that you are the ICJ Administrator at DCS, and tell us about your experiences in child welfare. So I've been with the department approximately uh, 18 years, started off in uh, Davidson County as a foster care case manager. That's what we were called at that time. We think we had a case of about 20 uh, cases. And then from there, I went to be a PATH trainer where I trained foster parents and PATH training with parents as tender healers. And then I was promoted uh, and left Davidson to go to Mid-Cumberland as a juvenile justice team leader. And I did that for about eight years. Then I uh, was promoted to central office as deputy compact administrator for ICJ for about four years. And then I was promoted this last March as the commissioner. People don't often realize all the work that we do at the department in juvenile justice. For those that may be listening and learning about child welfare in Tennessee, could you tell us a little bit about juvenile justice and, you know, what we do at the department in that program area? Sure. So Tennessee is a little unique in that our Office of Juvenile Justice is part of the Department of Children's Services. When you look at other states, um, it's a separate agency. So we have the beauty of being under the umbrella with foster care and, and CPS, which kind of helps us to work together with those other specialty areas. So yeah. juvenile Justice has a deputy commissioner, it has an executive director, then it has three statewide directors, and those statewide directors are responsible for overseeing the day-to-day work of the region. So juvenile justice reports directly to central office, so they get that hands-on connection to central office and the support that they need. We deal with any youth who is adjudicated delinquent, basically meaning that if they were an adult, crimes that they committed would be considered to have jail time or probation. And so so our job in juvenile justice is to rehabilitate those youth. Um, we try to have programs that work with youth that will encourage them to turn from their delinquent behavior and try to uh, work with the community, community partners to give them treatment and to uh, help them to be 
young productive citizens back in their hometowns and communities. I know in other states, juvenile justice is kind of run through the criminal justice system, but in Tennessee, we really try to take that holistic perspective and like you were saying, to provide help and services and rehabilitative resources for those youth. So we, we are unique in some ways about that. We um, are, and I, I think that what people don't realize is that a lot of times our delinquent youth are crying out for help. We don't want to have a gotcha system. We want to have a system where we can work together as social workers with the family, with the community to try to provide that treatment to not only the youth, but also to the family because it affects the family as well. When you're talking about your child has committed a crime, uh, it impacts the family, it impacts their siblings. So we, we try to have a family approach to working with that youth and the family and providing service. And I think that's what makes us unique in Tennessee. Thank you for making that point. I think that's so important um, that how it impacts the family, what's going on, how can we get in there and help them um, as opposed to just saying you committed a crime, you deserve to go to jail. So I really appreciate you saying that. Your main role is to oversee this pretty complicated federal process and federal law, the Interstate Compact for Juveniles. It's throughout the United States. So what types of situations the law apply to? ICJ, we deal with any juvenile that is adjudicated delinquent that is being supervised or overseen by a court. So if they are on probation, if they are, are parole, and parole youth are those youth who are in custody but are we're working to get them back home or working to get them with a relative, they are subject to the compact if they are moving across state lines. And then we also are unique in that we deal with all runaways regardless of adjudication. If a juvenile runs across state lines, then ICJ is the only legal means to returning that juvenile to their parent and bringing them home. So even if it's a child in foster care that runs away, does ICJ apply to that? Yes. If, they're, if they are in foster care in a foster home, ICJ comes mm -hmm. into play. If my own daughter runs across state lines, then ICJ is in play. So I deal with situations that have nothing to do with the Department of Children's Services. It's a child who, who decided that they wanted to, as I call, go on a vacation, a solo vacation across mm -hmm. state lines. They did not have permission from their parents to do so. Then I work with that parent directly um, to bring their youth back home. Wow, I didn't realize that. This really, this law really applies to all parents, whether they're previously involved with the department or not. Really something interesting and important. I know there are a lot of requirements with ICJ, but what are some of the processes that are in place that, that you oversee so that we stay in compliance? Like, I know you do run Runaways, what are some other kinds of things that the law oversees? So one of the things that I want to mention that most people aren't aware is that ICJ, Interstate Compact for Juveniles, um, the National Office is in Lexington, Kentucky, um, and there is an executive okay. committee that oversees all 50 states and two U.S. territories, and that being Washington, D.C., and the U.S. Virgin Islands. The Interstate Commission has the ability to sanction states who fail to not follow the rules, protocols of ICJ. And because ICJ is federal, it supersedes any state law. Uh, okay. My job is to work with the juvenile court and sometimes even the adult court to ensure that when they are ruling on these cases, 
and juveniles have uh, notified the court that they are moving across state lines, that my office is involved on the front to ensure that the rules are being followed, that we are giving notice to the other state that this juvenile has charges and that they are entering their state to reside and to make sure that that juvenile that is relocating to the other state understands that state's law. For example, uh, anytime that we have a youth who has a sexual-related offense, they have to have permission from the other state prior to traveling there for vacation uh, or prior, prior to location to reside because they have to follow that state law and, and that state's mandate when it comes to registering on their sexual offender. Registry. example, if a juvenile who is a teen goes mm-hmm. to state B, that state B may say, well, you can come, but you have to register on our registry within 48 hours. Failure to do so may result in you receiving a felony in our state. Now, if state B's uh, age of majority is 16 and then mm-hmm. you consider an adult for a criminal offense, you now have an adult felony on your record for visiting that state and failing to follow that state's registration laws. And wow. then some state registries are public. So if I go visit Grandma Joe in State C and State C has a public registry, well, my grandmother's friends may know, you know, um, right. what what's going on with me. Uh, I was convicted in, in Tennessee of a sex-related offense. So we really try to educate court, uh, DAs, attorneys, public defenders, as well as DCS staff so that they can educate these juveniles on the front end so that they can make decisions. I've had situations where families will say, absolutely not. We're going to cancel our vacation. We're not going to go to this state because I don't want to subject my child to having to register, and I don't want to put them on a public registry. And that's their right, but they need to know that on the front end. Right. These laws vary quite a bit from state to state, and so part of being in compliance means having a deep understanding and knowledge of all the different legal situations that juveniles may be placed in when they go from state to state. Right. We, you know, we have, we are fortunate that our compact has a website, so Mm -hmm. people are able to go and check out our website at www.juvenilecompact.org. And a lot of questions can be answered on there. The uh, age matrix is on there. The sex offender matrix is on there. And, and let they know what age a majority uh, in, in, for supervision. For example, when I send out cases for supervision, most FSWs and service workers will ask, well, this this is an adult. They're, they're 23. <laughs> Why are you supervising a 23-year-old? Because in California, the age of majority for juvenile supervision is 25. Wow. And so we have to go by that state age of majority. For example, in New Jersey, the age of majority for a delinquent supervision is 27. Wow. So, yes. So we are supervising, uh, in some instances, adults because we have to supervise them based on that sending state age of majority. Sure. I'm just interested. What is this? the uh, age of majority in Tennessee? So our delinquent youth, it is 19. 19. Okay. Yeah. I was just curious. Yes. Gosh, I bet that does really kind of get complicated at times. So this wrench in there real quick. So we've had, just to give you an example, we there's two states within the compact that does not have an age limit or time limit on uh, sexual offenses. For example, we had a youth, well, not a youth, an adult, who committed a crime at 17 under the juvenile justice system. He absconded with his parents and was located here in Tennessee. He was 30 years old. Um, And so he 
was returned to the demanding state, the state that uh, issued the warrant at 30 to, to face his alleged crime committed mm-hmm. in that state. And then they transferred his supervision back to us. So we're supervising under a juvenile contact a 30-year-old. It's interesting and it gets complicated at times. Right. I bet it does. And since we are we are the Department of Children's Services and we're, we provide services and um, a rehabilitative approach, um, but other states, it's um, under the purview of criminal justice, so they have maybe a different setup, I guess, Correct. to approach these situations. So, interesting. In terms of DCS staff, our case managers and our team leaders and team coordinators, all of us are required to comply with this law. What are some of the ways that we ensure that we are in compliance with the law at DCS? Provide training. We, mm-hmm. we send out the national office trainings that are provided provided by the commission and their two-day training. And then prior to COVID, I would go out and train the courts personally. I would just reach out to the courts. I would attend their judges conference and schedule to meet with those courts and their YSOs and court staff mm-hmm. and, and, and train them on the compact. Uh, we try to do that every two years because the compact uh, every two years has rulemaking years. And so when rules change, I really try my best to reach out to the court to offer that training. I also offer training to all new hires that are hired for uh, juvenile justice. And so that's a wonderful opportunity. And then also, <laughs> they also... Uh, have us on their agenda to come and train new court staff. So there are numerous ways that we try to make sure that the information is out and that Tennessee, because my job is to ensure that Tennessee remains compliant and that uh, we follow the, 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 the federal law. In Tennessee, I'm, you were talking about, I'm just kind of curious, I think our listeners would be curious about the sex offender registry. Is there a sex offender registry for juveniles in Tennessee that the public can access? Yes. So our sex offender registry is through the TBI, Tennessee Bureau Mm -hmm. of Investigation. The juvenile registry, of course, is private. Um, So you would be able to access that. But I, I often refer when, when youth from other states wants to come visit, of course, you know, our Smoky Mountains, Gatlinburg is, you know, is really popular. Yeah. And oh, so yeah. I often refer the other ICD office from the other state to contact our TBI to determine if that youth is subject to the registry. Okay. So, for instance, our case managers, if they're... If they have, they're working with a family and they have a youth on their caseload and that youth needs to travel, would that case manager be able to call your office or your team to get travel permit or? Yes, yes. So they would contact my office, but we we actually have on the DCS intranet all of the updated forms. The forms are also on the juvenilecompact.org website, so they, they can access those forms on either uh, on either website, um, and then they can they fill those out, as well as the court. The court can access them as well, uh, because mm-hmm. the court are also responsible for ensuring those kids who are on county probation and have mm-hmm. delinquent charges submit travel permits. They can submit those to our office uh, at our ICJ mailbox that we have, or they can give my office a call if they have questions and are looking uh, need some further directions. We, you know, we are always willing to assist. Are there ever times when, you know, we, we certainly want to give our youth as much freedom and opportunity as possible, but 
Are there times when travel permits have to be denied? We have denied some. Well, let me say this. It's, it's up to that date. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, we, we try to, to get those out as quickly as possible because we know that youth have to travel. So I don't know if we've ever really denied any, mm-hmm. but we try yeah. to make sure that the other state is aware that this youth is coming and give them as much information as possible. Okay. So we do everything we can to ensure that youth are able to travel and move about freely as possible. Um, however, other states are part of that decision-making process and they have laws and regulations. And so so that's interesting right. to think about. Yeah. What about, do you work a lot with youth who run away? I would say probably 75% of my job is dealing with runaways. Wow. Um, and I can, I have anywhere, I mean, just give you an example. Um, I, I think I've worked seven or eight runaway cases at one time. And runaway cases can be a little difficult because you're, you're number one, you're trying to figure out who is this child, why did they run, what's going on with the child, are they safe where they're at, uh, what's going on with the family. And so you're trying to get all of this information within the time frame because with ICJ, we have, we have time frames built in that we have to meet. Right. We have a system that we work in, which is called JIS, which is being replaced in December by Unity. But uh, with runaways, we try to get them home as quickly and as safely as possible. But it also means sometimes that we have to get CPS involved, um, mm-hmm. especially if that youth alleges allegations of abuse and neglect. And so it may not be in that youth's best interest to return to a birth parent. It may be in the best interest for us to return to our custody and determine at a later date, you know, is this, you know, can this child go home safely? Have we have we addressed the concerns and reduced the safety issues? And so I, there's a lot of a lot of moving parts. You're dealing with two different courts. You're dealing with the court here, the court in the other state. You may have the CPS involved, CPS in the other state involved. So you have the birth parent, and you're trying to keep everybody. Uh, informed. And so it's kind of like, you know, trying to figure out who's on first, who's on second, and who's going home. Uh, and so right. trying to keep all of those moving pieces at, at times can be uh, a little difficult. I bet, yes, considering the different laws, and then there's the federal law and just different right. processes. And um, it does make sense. I know, you know, one of those looming correlations with uh, youth who run away is that of being trafficked for either labor or sex trafficking. And I know that at that point, that's when we would call a call in a referral to the child abuse hotline. And so then you have, you know, there's a lot of considerations about child safety, like you said. So Yeah. And, and one thing I, I want people to understand is that we had a case a few years back where mm-hmm. a young lady was picked up on runaway and she mentioned who her father was and they contacted the father and he said, I'm on my way uh, to pick her up. And thank God for a court liaison and a YSO mm-hmm. interviewing this youth when court opened. Because the thought was, if the father doesn't make it, let's go ahead and get her in court and she can have mm-hmm. her due process hearing. Because every youth that we return has to have a due process hearing and they have to voluntarily mm-hmm. agree to return to the state seeking their uh, return. And okay. so they were trying to be proactive and say, okay, if dad doesn't make it in time, we can still get her in front of the judge. And that way, when he does show, we can release. Well, in talking to this young lady, they realized that her story wasn't adding up, that something wasn't right. Um, and they just had this gut feeling. And so they contacted my office. And, and the rules basically say that within the first 24 hours, if they have no pending charges in the state where they were located, 
or in the state that they ran from, they can be released to a legal guardian. Anything after 24 hours, it has to go through my office. Well, it was still within the 24 hours. And so they called me and they said, hey, Corey, we know that your office really isn't involved because it's still within the first 24 hours. But mm-hmm. something's not sitting right in our spirit with this young lady. Could you just call the other state and find out what's going on, find out um, who, her baba, who her parents are, and if they have any background information on her? Well, come to find out, when I called the other state, the person that they contacted was not the, was not the father, mm-hmm. but her sex trafficker. Wow. Yes. So we had to we had to get this young lady secure, and because now she knows her whereabouts. Okay. Um, and so we had to work with the TBI was involved, and mm-hmm. uh, because it was multiple states that she had been tracked, we had to get other agencies involved. So it was a lot of moving pieces, um, mm-hmm. and we were able to get that youth returned back to her state. And she had been involved in sex trafficking for a number of years. That's a really hard part of the position, I'm sure, is doing the best thing for those youth and getting them to a safe place and also some restorative health care and get them safe in a safe spot. So I really appreciate your work and your service towards that because I know how challenging that is. One of the things I did want to plug, I know you do offer the training and you you actually, as the ICJ commissioner, you offer, well, pre-COVID and post-COVID, yes. you uh, <laughs> offer face-to-face training to the court systems and I did just want to plug the ICJ training that is offered through a webinar. It's a virtual training, and you actually do those virtual trainings um, on a national scale. Well, I did. I did do those mm-hmm. trainings last year myself and my previous supervisor, Kat, a training team. I have yes. not done those trainings this year, so it's being offered by trainers in other states who are either ICJ commissioners or deputy contact administrators. But I do offer the face-to-face training for the court and DCS staff. So we are looking, and because of COVID, we are looking at ways of training a staff within our state so that way it's more Tennessee-specific versus on a national level. And so mm-hmm. we are thinking about how we can get that training out to those who seek to gain information on ICJ. Great. And just for those, anyone interested, you can go to dcstn.gov and search for DCS virtual training calendar, and you can find those trainings on there. It gives a really good description about the history and the different things to consider about ICJ, and it's a really good starting place, especially for child welfare professionals who may be working with youth that wants to travel, needs to travel. So so you've given some really great examples that help to understand ICJ better. You did juvenile justice for eight years, so that's a really long time. And did you ever work with a youth where ICJ uh, was implemented and you worked that process when you were a team leader? I did. And, you know, that I, I did it. Did have, I had several cases who I were, who youth, whose youth were subject to ICJ. Mm-hmm. And that kind of started my interest in the compact and wanting to know more. And so that kind of helped me to, when the position became available, interview for it. And thank God um, I was offered to work in the compact office. And so just, just watching those cases as a team leader and how the the transfer of cases across state lines and dealing with runaways, it, just, it seems so seamless but also complicated and, and trying to figure out well, how do they do that? How do they ensure that these kids are being supervised in the other state? And how do they ensure that the runaway gets back to the state seeking them, their return? And so that piped my interest. I was like, oh, let me, let me, 
you know, do a little bit more research. And then when the position became open, I was like, well, I think I'm interested. And so. Right. That is really great. Yeah, it's very interesting and very important work. And it's one of those things that are almost behind the scenes in a way. And your office, your team works statewide. And I know that you stay busy and that there is a lot. There's a big need to stay in compliance with ICJ and also to serve the youth and family so that they're able to travel and, and go from state to state. That is the point of the compact is that we want mm-hmm. to ensure that youth and families can travel they, if they have to relocate because dad lost his job and he, he has yeah. a job now in Colorado. But at the same time, we also want to make sure that the, the neighborhood and the communities are safe as well and, and that this youth is being supervised, whether he's in Tennessee or in Alaska, that there's right. someone providing services, someone looking in on this youth and then, get, you know, reporting that information back to the state that is responsible and oversees the case. That's that other component of juvenile justice is community safety. We want the youth to be safe, but we also want the community to be safe. Correct. Um, And also, in your assistance and service to ensure that the youth are aware of the laws and other structures, you are keeping that youth safe so that they don't accidentally break a law. Um, so that they're well informed of, of what is required of them from state to state. Correct. You're, you're absolutely right. We, we don't want to set that juvenile up for failure. We don't want to yeah. uh, cause further injury to that juvenile or the family by failing to inform them, hey, if you move to this state, these are the requirements in that state, especially if you have a sexual-related offense. Yes, exactly. And that does vary a lot from state to state. Correct, because what happens in our state may not meet or rise to the level in the other state for them to register, but we wanted Mm -hmm. them to have that information. Right. Well, Corey, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate you just inviting me and allowing me to come and talk about my my passion, which is juvenile justice and all things ICJ. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And I I do like getting this information out to people because it's so interesting. It's important. It's a way that we serve youth and even adults. It it applies to all parents as well, not just those involved with DCS. So very interesting. It is. So, So again, I appreciate you so much. I'm going to tell our listeners to please listen again to hear other wonderful subject matter experts like Corey Copeland discuss ways to advocate for children and youth and 